Gordon Caddick, captain of the Good Ship Darts and Letters, God bless him. He's buried under a mountain of work for his PhD right now. So for today, you got me. Just a quick note on this episode, it does talk about sexual assault. If you're not in the right frame of mind to hear that sort of thing, you might want to skip this one. Excited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Mark Apollonio. Imagine one day you're sitting at home. The police show up, tell you you're under arrest. Turns out they say you're the main suspect of a violent crime. The evidence against you, well, it seems pretty much infallible. Your DNA was found at the scene, linking you inextricably to this event. But this wasn't you. You have zero connection to any of it. The victim, the location. You know exactly what you were doing when this crime went down far from where you were. It's like they picked you at random to blame for something you had nothing to do with. And I think we can all agree that, well, if you're, say, black or indigenous, things are looking even worse for you. If I really put my mind to imagining that nightmare, it kind of turns my guts. The whirling shame and fear as the court case unfolds, the conviction comes down and I'm packed away in a prison where I'm a target among the other inmates due to the nature of this supposed crime. All the while, I'm unable to make a dent in that unassailable detail. My DNA was found. This kind of thing happens, and our story today is about one person who lived through it. We aren't just telling you the story because it's an interesting listen. We're doing it because it's a particularly bad example of forensic science failing. It shows what happens when we trust experts blindly, and when we believe that scientific evidence is unimpeachable, even something as apparently reliable as DNA. This is a story of well-meaning people putting an innocent man in prison because of failings in a system that is rife with racial bias and can be really bad at judging whether evidence is good or not. And, unless we're careful, there's new technology coming down the pipes that may make things even less just. The story of Farajama and the future of forensic science after this. With this episode today, in fact, with all Darts and Letters episodes, we're bringing you stories and views you don't hear anywhere else. No one does it the Darts way, and we want to keep doing it forever and ever. So give us a hand. Patreon.com slash Darts and Letters. Throw us a few dollars and you'll get your episodes a day early, and you'll never hear me plead for your money again. The allegation against him was that he had attended a nightclub in one of the eastern suburbs here in Melbourne and that he had drugged a woman who was much older than him 
that he's then taken her to the toilet cubicle and they sexually assaulted and raped her. That's Kimani Bowden, a Melbourne, Australia-based lawyer who served as the appeal lawyer for Farah Jama, the young man whose alleged crime he was just describing. We'll hear more from Kimani Bowden soon, but first, some background. In 2006, a young woman went to Melbourne police to complain about a sexual incident involving several young men, including Farah Jama. As part of the process of filing the complaint, she was taken to a sexual assault crisis care center. Farah Jama, 19 years old at the time, was taken in for questioning. He told police it had all been consensual. Police took a sample of his DNA and he was released. The woman then withdrew her complaint and no charges were laid. A day later, in a completely unrelated incident, another woman was brought into the same sexual assault crisis center to be examined. She'd been found unconscious on the floor of a toilet stall in a woman's washroom in a club in an upscale Melbourne neighborhood. A staff person at the club had seen her legs sticking out from under the stall. Someone had to climb over the stall wall to get her because it was locked from the inside. Remember, this examination happens at the same sexual assault crisis care center one day later as the first young woman I mentioned. DNA evidence discovered during this woman's examination appeared to indicate she'd been raped. That DNA matched with a sample police had taken from Farajama. A trial ensued. Farajama was found guilty of rape. In sentencing Jama to six years in prison, the judge said, quote, the jury cannot have viewed the facts any other way. They take her sample to obviously determine DNA matches and see whether there has been a rape. And it's in that process that they discovered uh, Farajama's DNA. Based on that, an investigation was then commenced and uh, Farajama was charged on the basis of that DNA having been found mixed with her DNA. So that's the only piece of evidence brought against him. And then he has, he has an array of evidence in his defense. Can you tell me about all the evidence that, that was... Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. So as you say uh, quite correctly, the only evidence that links him to the purported crime is his DNA. And circumstances where there is no CCTV footage of him ever entering into the club, no evidence from anyone else who identifies or says that they've seen him in the club. There's obviously no telephone tracking, anything of that nature, GPS, which uh, suggests that he was at the club. His evidence is that he was at home with various family members who confirm that he didn't go out. There is the evidence that obviously he was much younger. Him going to a club as a young black male would have been noticed. It's a club which was basically frequented by mainly Caucasians, Southern Europeans. So he would have stood out if he would have entered there. And on top of that, would have been questionable whether he would have gotten in uh, in an under-28 establishment. Yeah, sorry, can you explain that to me? That's a funny um, detail. So are there clubs there that are only for people above the age of 28? Is that how that works? I think you probably can go in as a younger person, but in reality, you wouldn't want to. So it's a club which is sort of to cater for the sort of more mature crowd, or it might be in particular nights. So I don't think it's a strict prohibition, but I think at the door, people would have noticed and there would have been 
you know, would have been some comments made or someone would have at least remembered him. Yeah. And I, th- I think I've read in, in, in some of the reporting that like there were, as you said, CCTV footage that did not see anybody. I think the entire club was white people. Yes. This young black kid shows up and is not seen on any of the cameras, but in order for the DNA evidence to make sense, he would have had to show up completely unseen by the cameras, get into the club. The allegation was that he drugged this woman. So at some point in this half an hour that she was in the club, he would have had to drug her, drag her through a crowded nightclub into the bathroom, bring her into a cubicle in a women's bathroom, then escape the women's bathroom by climbing over the stall because it was locked from the inside, gotten out of this club packed full of people. And then there was the testimony of his family. His father, I think, was sick. That's right. Farah was reading the Quran with them. Yes. So there was a whole array of evidence in his defense, right? Correct. Once I had reviewed, obviously, the trial transcript and obtained those instructions, I contacted our own specialist to conduct a DNA analysis because I wanted to have the tests rerun. We actually were never provided with the samples, but what then happened is, and I think someone obviously within the prosecution's uh, department realized that there might have been a problem there. They basically accepted that there was something that needed further investigation. We made a bail application for uh, Farah to be released pending the hearing of his appeal. That was not opposed. And then in the process, the prosecution case collapsed and they admitted that they had been in error. Um, they've agreed for uh, Farah to be acquitted. And then there was then a inquiry ordered by the uh, state government, which was led by a retired judge who basically published a detailed report as to what's occurred. And what was found out as a result of that was that the sample that had been taken from Farah on the very night got mixed with the sample of this alleged victim from the nightclub purely due to not having followed proper procedure in terms of sterilization, cleansiness, and all those sort of things. I mean, at least if there would have been, okay, we've seen them on the camera footage and we've got the DNA, there's some form of corroboration or anything else of that nature. But here, there was an absolute lack of any corroboration. As a result of the uh, Judge Winston's report, there have then been introduced various measures to ensure that this sort of um, travesty of justice doesn't occur in the future. So they've introduced pretty strict guidelines as to how samplings are to be taken and the like, cleaning procedures and the like. So his original lawyers, his trial lawyers, did not ask to corroborate the DNA? They didn't, and if they did, not sufficiently. That's right. What was their defense, to the best of your knowledge? I think they were probably in a sort of difficult position because in front of the jury, it seems to me, they didn't want to raise the fact that Farah had been interviewed or his DNA had been collected in relation to another allegation because to their mind, that probably had the potential of um, well, really turning the jury's opinion against Farah along the lines of, well, look, if he's been accused of something similar previously or has been his DNA sample has been taken previously in relation to something like that, he's probably guilty here as well. So I can understand the logic, but having said that, given the lack of any corroboration, they probably should have accepted his instructions in relation to that and not hidden it and brought it out to the jury because at least it would have been a proper explanation as to how the DNA could have been transferred to this alleged victim. 
All right, a little interruption here so I can explain how exactly experts at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine say this contamination happened. In a nutshell, the first woman who complained to police about a sexual incident involving Farah Jama and a couple of other young men, the one who then withdrew her complaint. As part of her complaint process, she'd been taken into the sexual assault center. While she was there, some of Farah Jama's DNA, in the form of dried semen, fell off of her and onto some examination equipment including an examination swab. 28 hours later, the second woman, the one Farajama was wrongfully accused of raping, was taken into the sexual assault center after being found unconscious in the dance club. She was examined with a swab, the one that was already contaminated with Farajama's DNA. When this DNA was identified, it was cross-referenced with a police DNA database, a database which now already contains Farajama's DNA since he willingly gave it to police when they brought him in for questioning for the first incident. Do you think the readiness of the jury to convict, despite, again, all the evidence in his favor, had, I mean, what role did, did race play in this? I think race had a role to play, and I think on a couple of levels. I think it had a role to play first in terms of the investigation because I'm of the view if it would have been a you know, Caucasian young male from one of the uh, more privileged suburbs in Melbourne, prosecution would have taken a more common sense approach in terms of really looking at, all right, what's the evidence that we have against this person? And that would have obviously been the DNA. But what are the other sort of matters which don't really make sense and we can't explain? So, for example, the fact that we don't have any corroboration in terms of him being at the club, footage, the likelihood of him carrying this alleged victim to the cubicle and all of those matters. And I think it would have been a person of another race. It may not have happened. So that's the first point. And, and the second point in terms of the jury as well, and that's a criticism that's often raised against the jury system here, particularly in Victoria, is the fact that there is a underrepresentation of different ethnicities, people from different uh, cultural, religious backgrounds and the like. So you've got a pretty much all Caucasian jury. They are told that, look, there is this African young boy charged with this very serious matter. Uh, and look, no doubt, in my view, race may very well have played a part in that as well. And then they hear he is Muslim on top of it which, uh, given the sort of stereotyping of the Muslim community, may have also had an influence. Can we say for certain if it wasn't for his mother banging on the, on the doors and, and getting, trying to get this appeal going that he, he may still be there? I mean, I guess I, I, we don't know what prompted the forensic, the police investigators to re-examine the DNA and determine that it could be contaminated, do we? I think uh, what prompted them was really the fact that obviously an appeal had been lodged, but the correspondence that uh, we sent, that I've sent to them, really pointing out that issue. And I also requested them for a copy of the brief, obviously, and all of the information in relation to the previous investigation. So I asked about, tell us the circumstances of how it was he brought, brought in, where his DNA sample was taken, all of those things. Do you think there are motivations to give such primacy to DNA that it is, it could be seen to be beneficial for politicians to be in charge of jurisdictions that are tough on offenders, tough on so-called criminals, 
And so there is an incentive for a system to find a categorical tool that can like just say, okay, this person is guilty. We know it. We have this like all powerful tool. And so there's sort of an incentive in the system to elevate the power of DNA because it makes their lives easier in attaining the goal of trying to demonstrate that they're, you know, quote unquote, keeping the streets clean. Oh, definitely. Definitely. If we can rely on DNA in that form, it makes policing in a lot of respects much easier. If the community accepts that DNA is all powerful, it, it, it will then appear as though convictions of people on DNA are rightful and can't be questioned. So it's good in that regard as well. But it also is, you know, look, we, I feel that we're in a culture of policing is probably becoming more lazy than it ever used to be. People are always looking for the quick solution and for something which is, you know, just undisputable without sort of really looking at nuances. And that's even in politics where things are more and more being painted in a sort of black and white scenario. So I think DNA evidence plays into all of those uh, issues. Would there be any use to the general public being aware? I mean, if somebody is finds himself in the position of, of being a defendant, is pointing out that DNA evidence is potentially faulty the kind of thing that could be important? It would. And I think not only from the pen, defense's point of view that it's a responsibility for them, I think it's actually a responsibility for the court and the judge as well to make sure that jurors understand what DNA is all about. So as part of that, when the scientist or the expert goes in the witness box, it should be broken down in as simple fashion as possible. So it doesn't just sound like, you know, numbers and statistics, which the normal juror is not going to understand. Because unfortunately, as, as the sort of lay person, we also have a tendency now, we don't want to admit that we don't understand something. So rather than actually saying, look, we don't understand, we sort of just go along and say, oh, well, look, he's the scientist and he's rattling off all his numbers and statistics. He must be right. But I think what's important, and particularly uh, as a juror to be involved in the criminal process, it's got to be the court's responsibility to ensure that the information provided is clear and can be understood. And as part of that, any shortcomings in the DNA analysis should be clearly explained. So it should be said by a judge to the jury that, well, look, this is evidence, this is DNA evidence, that's how it works. But in uh, simple terms, it's not infallible. There can be errors, there can be mistakes. You guys can take it into account, but you got to look at the case as a whole and then you got to reach a decision. So this DNA is not the be and end all. You can simply rely upon it. So what, what is Farajama up to today? Look, he is doing well. He uh, is married. He has uh, a child. And um, yeah, he's, he's starting to become a pilot. Has he ever shared with you any, any reflections about what this whole ordeal meant to him? I, I'm still in touch with him, and, and I do think that it has impacted him, you know, in a sort of long-term permanent fashion. And that's really in terms of the vigilance that he has in terms of dealing with authorities. I mean, I wouldn't call it paranoia, but he is very sensitive when it comes to dealing with authorities. And there is obviously an element of fear in relation to dealing with authorities, which I think is permanent. It's just one of the effects that uh, he suffered. That was Melbourne-based lawyer Kimani Bowden. 
He was Farajama's appeal lawyer. Jama spent 15 months in prison for a crime he did not commit, for a crime, in fact, that never even occurred. He was awarded $525,000 by the state of Victoria. It's a shocker, really. Everything went wrong. Every aspect of this case had serious failings. It's very difficult to sort of encapsulate it as to one thing. A very serious failing was that there was one bit of evidence. Turned out to be contamination. The police did think about contamination, but um, thought about it happening at the laboratory, and the laboratory ruled out contamination happening at the laboratory, so the police regarded contamination as having been ruled out. That's Stephen Cordner. At the time this story was unfolding, he was head of the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, the organization that oversaw the sexual assault center where both women involved in this story were examined. When the DNA contamination came to light, Cordner faced the media and for a time stood alone as the public face of what went wrong. Later, the state government of Victoria opened an inquiry led by a retired Supreme Court judge. They wanted to figure out how this case went so wrong and to make sure the same thing never happened again. The main recommendations really just are fairly obvious after you know the story, but the management of the facility and the cleanliness of it. Uh, The facility was attached to a busy emergency department, was sometimes used by the emergency department when it was overflowing. It was run by a sexual assault centre, but the cleaning was undertaken by the hospital. There were no cleaning records and, you know, there hadn't been any cleaning between these two examinations. So a totally basic, fundamental aspect of uh, the management of a facility. It has crossed my mind, has this happened elsewhere? And it's, it's hard to believe that every sexual assault facility in the world is beautifully cleaned. So, you know, you just wonder, has this happened before and for some reason hasn't been detected? It's certainly um, the focus of the recommendations was on that, but it was also on other aspects of how people were totally sort of overwhelmed by the power of the DNA evidence. It sort of drove common sense out of people's minds. It displaced any scepticism about the circumstances. The circumstances, once you look at them, simply make it virtually impossible for Mr Jarman to have been involved. I think as soon as people hear DNA, they think, they think guilty <laughs> without um, thinking beyond that. And DNA always has to have a story around it to put it in a proper context. How would you express that idea to lay people that there should be more skepticism about forensic science and DNA forensics more generally? I mean, you've only got to see the Innocence Project in the United States to and the number of wrong convictions that have been exposed by it, perhaps about half of which, 40 or 50% anyway, have problems with 
forensic evidence in them, uh, and they're very serious wrong convictions. Those 350 cases since the 1990s to realise that forensic evidence is is not infallible. Broadly speaking, what do you think needs to happen to prevent this kind of mess up from happening again? Well, I think this particular kind of mess up requires the sort of measures we've already mentioned, which is, you know, just make sure that places are properly cleaned. But it also requires investigators who think more broadly. So the police investigators, unfortunately, didn't think broadly enough about the possibility. The forensic science laboratory didn't think broadly enough when asked about contamination. They just simply thought of their own contamination. We were never, that is the doctor, was never asked about the investigation of this case, never knew about the investigation of this case. So a broader sort of inquiry from police might have encompassed going and having a chat to the doctor. They might have had something to contribute. The DPP, as we mentioned, operated on a single bit of evidence and didn't have enough scepticism about the totality of the circumstances. And there were even uh, problems in the trial. So there were lessons for everyone along the way. That was Stephen Cordner, former director of the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine. Retired Judge Frank Vincent's report about Farah Jama's ordeal made a long list of recommendations. They include things like stricter forensic protocols to avoid contamination, better training of police around DNA forensics, and measures to ensure blind trust in forensics doesn't undermine the pursuit of justice. Also, following the ordeal, the state of Victoria's Director of Public Prosecutions issued a directive requiring any Crown case based solely on DNA evidence to get its approval before going ahead. Stephen Cordner said, in Farajama's case, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. It was an example of technical failings going unnoticed and unexamined because of an almost unquestioning faith in technology. According to our next guest, legal systems and civil societies the world over need to develop a more critical attitude when it comes to forensic science, especially with what's coming down the pipes. In Farajama's story, we were talking about old-school DNA forensics. Investigators find DNA connected to a crime, they run it through a database. If they find a match, well, they might have their perp. But the future of DNA forensics is something else altogether. In this case, when DNA is found, it's plugged into software, which reads the DNA and starts listing attributes police can use in the search for suspects. Someone with green eyes, for example, or dark skin. One company is even producing AI-generated photographs. Photographs of what a suspect might look like. This is the fantasy. To jump into the uh, critique immediately, the people that are working on this, on these kind of technologies, they immediately acknowledge how incredibly complicated the face is. That's Ahmad Mesherik. She's professor of the anthropology of science at the University of Amsterdam. She's worried that the technology will entrench racial stereotypes. She's also concerned about just how well it works. 
So even your worst mugshot is always better than a DNA-informed uh, mugshot, just to be on the safe side that we are not producing images here or ideas that are not real. But what are they actually able to create in terms of this mugshot? I mean, they're, are they able to generate the bone structure of a person? Like when you're looking at this picture, how closely are they claiming it may resemble the real individual? What can be done are a determination of eye color, hair color, skin color, and age. So these are the, the markers that are currently in use, uh, depending on where you are in the world and, and uh, the jurisdiction. But there is work on, uh, for example, there has been publications on the relation between genes and certain parts of the face, and the, so the facial structure. Uh, there is intensive work going on on producing more knowledge about the genetic features of our facial uh, forms. But that, let's say, not a surprising surprise that it is really complicated and that you cannot really go from the genes to how people look like. Where we're at right now, they will generate a mugshot where they can say, okay, this, this, this person, this woman or man has blue eyes, blonde hair, is in their mid-50s. Yeah. And skin color. And that they're, they're white. They generate an image based on that, which is incredibly nonspecific. I mean- Absolutely. And then they're handing to police a composite image that actually doesn't look like a real person. The only thing that's identifying are these four attributes. No, I mean, that would be really improper to do it that way. So it, it would be these, these four markers of the face together with the ancestry markers- by geographic ancestry. And it is not uh, a surprise that actually it is the biogeographic ancestry market that is really the most relevant. Because even if the person looks white, blue-eyed, and blonde hair, if the bio-ancestry marker tells you, well, you have to look in the Mediterranean region, that is really an interesting addition to this statement. Or if it would tell you, well, brown eye, brown skin, brown hair, you know, then it is the, your, your ancestry marker that will tell you, give you more information about. So that is really the most valuable uh, marker in this whole process, I should say. But you cannot go from there to providing a face. Going from DNA to an AI-generated face is just what one American company is doing. We'll be back with Ahmad Mesherik after this. Darts and Letters is proud to belong to the Harbinger Media Network, a collective of progressive Canadian podcasts. I'll admit this episode you're listening to right now, it's kind of heavy stuff. You want to lighten the mood when you're done? Check out the satirical vibe of the team at Big Shiny Takes, a show that does a close read of Canadian political pundits, then roasts them. Go check it out. Support.harbingermedianetwork.com What do you think of the possibilities of the kinds of technology we're talking about at helping to solve crime and, and, and what are the ways that it could potentially go wrong? Of course, if a severe, ugly crime happens in your vicinity, in your neighborhood, you would also be moved by it and you would want the suspect to be found. And these technologies, if properly used, can help in the criminal investigation. But 
There is, of course, one problem about this technology, as I indicated, the fact that the biogeographic ancestry marker is really the most important part of this technology. In a world in which structural injustices and structural um, uh, racism is ongoing, xenophobia is actually having its uh, renaissance at the moment. If it would be hinting at a minority population, whether this is a white population in a majority black population or a black population in a majority white, you can imagine that given the emotions that are mobilized by such an ugly event, uh, a crime, and the fact the technology hits hint, uh, in this population, that that will generate violence against people. So the, the goodness of the potential goodness of this technology is utterly dependent on how it is being used by the criminal justice system. Right. People would then turn on that minority population. Of course, of course. And start point, pointing fingers. But so when you say that the biogeographical markers are the most useful element here, what you're saying is the police find the DNA on a crime scene, they analyze it, and they can say, oh, we know this person is from some part of Europe or something. What that means is that when they then start finding suspects, they can exclude those who do not come from that region, who do not have genetic ancestry from that region. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, I think what, what is important here, what is hidden in this biogeographical ancestry is actually the specific histories, often colonial histories of a certain country, right? So if the suspect, uh, let's say, if, if such a biogeographic ancestry marker would uh, hint at, let's say, Northern Africa and the, and the Middle Eastern region, in the Netherlands, I can tell you, it's going to be translated in suspect is from Moroccan descent. And why is that? Because there is a, a relatively a higher number of people from originally from Morocco living in the Netherlands. If the same profile would be found in Germany, this would translate in suspect is from Turkish descent because there's a higher number of Turkish people from uh, living in, in Germany. You see what I mean? There is a space for interpretation. I mean, there is, <laughs> and how you interpret is also very contextual. And this will be different in the UK. It will be different in France. In France, it would be probably Algerian or Tunisian. You see what I mean? This is, it is depending on the colonial relations of these countries, on the migration patterns that have, that are current uh, uh, in these countries, how the DNA will be interpreted when it is hinting at a minority population. So we've been talking about all of this fairly generally. There is a company in the US, Parabon Nanolabs, that has been deploying this technology? How, how is, what claims are they making and, and how how is it being used and how is it turning out? So Nanolab is, uh, let's say, of a different kind because they are actually claiming to provide a, a portrait of the unknown suspect. So based on the same technology that we have been discussing, so biogeographic ancestry, as well as these features of the face, so eye color, skin color, hair color, and freckles, they claim to provide you with uh, a the face of the unknown suspect. And they do this reliant on a database that they are working with in where they have this DNA information of certain persons of which they also have the photo of the face. And so they compare the DNA of the unknown suspect to the DNA in the database and then start to work their way around with the pictures that they have of these persons, the population that they have in the database. And what they end up doing really is often producing stereotypes 
of sorts, of uh, white men, of African-American men. And, and if you look closely at how the DNA, say, works together with, with, these, with these photos, it is utterly stereotypical. Uh, there are photos that say, well, biogeographic ancestry uh, hints in, uh, say, West Africa, and then they would produce a face where you think, Okay, West Africa, but how do you, how do you, how did you imagine this hair look? And, you know, what about the width of the nose and, and the broad of the, 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 how the face is composed? And, and these are your stereotypical images of how a person would look like that comes from that region, which is a huge region. I don't know how many times uh, as big as Europe. So their markers would be, we know this person's eye color, skin color, hair, and hair based on those that small number of markers, they then invent a face and they say, this is what the person looks like. Whereas any population is incredibly diverse. And- exactly. I mean, it is not inventing like behind the table. Of course, they, they have uh, an algorithm that works with the photo material that they have in their computer. But this is still very hypothetical. So of the faces of cases that were solved that I have compared to what they provided, they were not comparable. Maybe perhaps of the angle of the the photo, the way it was taken. So is this a fundamentally flawed concept that they're working where they're they're trying to generate an actual lifelike image of their would-be suspect? Is this fundamentally flawed or or is it just a matter of, of, of they need to perfect this technology? I think it's flawed. I think it's flawed on various accounts. Uh, so uh, they are using, as I said, I mean, solid sort of knowledge that knowledge that has been developed in forensics in, in ways that are really overstretching the capacity, but also in ways they are producing race. They are, they are racializing people. And in that sense, they are contributing to all sorts of ideas that are out there in societies about crime. And I find that really not good. This is not something that uh, can be supported in any way. I mean, I've been thinking about, so what is this technology doing? Why are these police investigators making use of Parabon if it is not actually delivering the suspect? It is just giving you a fantasy mugshot of, of the suspect, right? So what is going on there? Why is this helpful? And I, there's two things that I think are important in criminal investigation. So one is the fact that the police also wants to have this idea that they're doing something, right? They are advancing in their quest. And so that is something very concrete. So at least we've done something. We have this wonderful company and they helped us to produce. Look, this is how he looks like. Can you please help us then find the next trail? So that is something, the idea of activity, of being on top of things. But I think the most important part is really to make sure that the case does not die, the case, <laughs> that the case is kept alive, that people keep on going to the Facebook accounts and, and commenting on it and making the case urgent and important to be looked at and uh, for the police also to have something in their hands, like, okay, we need to keep on searching. Uh, we should not give up on this case. And I think these are really the two most important drivers of this technology, basically. A lot of your your work focuses on the way forensic practices, forensic research goes about for its its technical purposes, constructing concepts of race. And I think geneticists, you know, would say these concepts of race are on very shaky grounds mm-hmm. if they exist at all. So walk me through why forensics needs to do that kind of reification of 
of, of an idea of race. Yes. So let me say, I indeed, as you say, there's a lot of work. Most of the work in genetics is really trying to steer clear from, from race and trying to show us actually that it doesn't make sense to think in, uh, about differences in terms of racial differences because there's no clear boundary between one population and the next. Now, in forensics, the production of race is a co-production. It is this unspecific profile, right? Biogeographic ancestry Sub-Sahara Africa. I mean, how how unspecific would you like to have it? Skin color and a, and a hair color and eye color, that's all. But what happens is that in order to make such an unspecific profile productive for the criminal investigation, it has to go through these translations. And it is there, actually, that the police intelligence comes in, that prejudice about crime and propensity of crime comes in, sentiments that are there in society come in. The concept of the Arab man did not exist until uh, uh, 9-11, so to speak. You know, it was not that present. Of course, it has a longer history, but it became a very, very intense sort of concept after 9-11. So this is about the intensities of emotions that can be there in society and how they feed into the way race gets done with the help of genetics. So it is not necessarily genetics that is reifying race. It is we do this together. <laughs> and it happens together either, you know, in the criminal justice system or as a society at large. So if we talk about, you know, we can critique these technologies and rightly so, but it, uh, we need to see our collective involvement in it and the co collective responsibility for it if we want to use it. Ahmad Mesherik is a professor of the anthropology of science at the University of Amsterdam, where she specializes in researching forensics and race. I did want to get the perspective from the people at Parabon Nano Labs. That's the company Ahmad Mesherik and I were talking about, the one that's creating the mugshots, what they call composites, based on DNA. I'm Ellen Graytack. I'm the director of bioinformatics at Parabon Nano Labs. Graytack says to date, there are 14 U.S. cases in which Parabon Nano Labs' composites were key tools in solving a crime. I asked Graytack about Ahmad Mesherik's criticism that the composites are too general and could lead to further reinforcing racial stereotypes. So we do get that kind of uh, criticism from lots of different groups, and we understand where they're coming from, but... I mean, the truth is you can, you can see for yourself on our website, we've published hundreds of predictions that we've made. And if that person has been identified, we have the picture of that person there. And you can see for yourself how they do. And most of them are, are very, very good. Of course, we, um, you know, we don't know the person's age or weight. So there are aspects of your appearance that are not written into your DNA. And we're very clear that this is a prediction from DNA. And so there's only so much we can take into account and only so much we can predict. But you know, the results that we've had, we've done tons and tons of testing, blind evaluations, and then hundreds and hundreds of actual cases. And it's been extremely successful. And then the, the critique about racial stereotyping, I, I don't quite understand that one. I've heard it a lot. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me because what we're producing is objective information about that person. So in the same way, if a eyewitness gave you a description of someone, would you say that they were introducing racial bias into the investigation by telling the investigators what they saw? I mean, that's just exactly what we're doing. It's a genetic witness.
Braytac later told me Parabon's AI-generated faces, the DNA phenotyping, quote, isn't intended for identification. It's to help investigators eliminate highly unlikely suspects and narrow down the possibilities, end quote. But Parabon's composites have in the past been released to the public by police and have generated tips on potential suspects. If you want to check out some of the composites for yourself, head over to Parabon Nanolabs' website, go to the forensic section, then go to snapshots. I take it with a grain of salt. This is promotional material. But here's my take. Some of their AI-generated composites are actually pretty close to what the suspect ended up looking like. Some of them, to me, not at all. That's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. I'm Mark Apollonio. The lead producer of Darts and Letters is Jay Coburn. Also, special thanks to Australian author and journalist Julie Zago. She was a huge help in my research for this episode. She is the author of the book on Farajama's ordeal titled The Tainted Trial of Farajama. Our marketing assistant is Ian Soudan. The lead research assistant for this episode was Roland Nadler. As always, our theme song and outro is composed by Mike Barber. Graphic design by Dakota Coop. We also had research and show notes from Dave Mosscrop. Your usual host and the show's editor is Gordon Caddick. To send us feedback, email the show darts at citedmedia.ca or you can tweet us at darts and letters. This is a production of Cited Media. We're backed by academic grants that support mobilizing research and democratizing the concept of public intellectualism. This episode also received support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, which is funding our mini-series on the state of forensic science. Scholarly lead on this project is Professor Emma Cunliffe. We're also supported by our patrons, patreon.com slash darts and letters to become one of them. Thanks for listening. Check back next Friday.